cette année-là. Les guitares tiraient sur les violons. On croyait qu'une révolution arrivait cette année-là. Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. How you doing? I hope uh, you're eating your vegetables. I have to say, it makes such a difference to try to eat a little more vegetables. I mean, you get more magnesium this way, right? Uh, which is something that the wisdom is going around about taking supplements for that. And of course, that does immediately make a shocking difference in terms of your stress level. It's really good. But if you can get that from vegetables directly, I mean, there's no substitute, actually. I got some good, like, flour tortillas that you can get here easy. And uh, you just fuck that into a fry pan with some olive oil. And you got there uh, avocado, tomato, some basil on that. The best, you know, and you hardly need meat. Uh, that's great. Uh, I'm back. Thanks very much again to uh, Prehensile on the Discord discussing fitness. Uh, you know, we have a, a Praxis channels for physical, spiritual, social, intellectual, and creative Praxis. Uh, this is a plural, I think, in Greek. Uh, and the physical channel, uh, we discuss things like this, right? And um, yeah, absolutely. MSM, glucosamine, chondroitin, right? Uh, collagen. So my Achilles tendon is back in action. I am once again running in the Huaraches and strutting around like a ballerina. I walk on my legs in this whole new way. And once again, I can feel myself using my core muscles in almost everything I do. I love that. There was a, I was reading uh, some Taiwanese colonial literature under the Japanese empire recently in a class and uh, just happened that day. Some student was also giving a presentation trying to draw parallels between Celtic culture and uh, Japanese culture, which I like the sentiment, you know, it's like usually Japan loves to compare itself to, to Britain, of course, and then, uh, you know, in that configuration Ireland is Korea and of course it is very flattering to be compared to Korea probably not in the way that these people mean but of course actually in pre-modern history the one that is closer to the continent and keeps on getting uh, influenced much much more by the continental civilization is actually Korea uh, right and it's actually Britain so in that sense it really makes quite a lot more sense and uh, in the same way, there are a lot of, in a way, Japan kind of missed the axial age. This was my r response to this idea. Uh, Japan missed the axial age and Ireland did as well. And that's kind of why Ireland is perceived as uh, insufficiently civilized, right? That's part of it uh, from a feudal point of view. And then, of course, later in a capitalist point of view, it becomes a site of unequal development and all of that, right? So it happened, though, in that Taiwanese story, there was some expression that was used 
uh, you know, it's in Japanese. It was, it was, um, Zenko no Ikari, I think, like getting angry with your whole anus, uh, which is a very Irish sign kind of expression as well, right? Like, uh, so many Irish English. And I wonder, I don't know if this has roots in the Irish language. You know, things like the after perfective, you know, like uh, my computer's after acting the bollocks would be, you know, my computer has just malfunctioned, right? And I'm just now, it's immediate, very, gives a sense of immediacy, right? Or of like completion and irreversible action, right? Don't, uh, don't climb up there, you'd be after falling down, right? You can talk about it, uh, you can use it to talk about a potential future action that is seen as irreversible and, and in that case very undesirable, right? I've seen RTE documentaries about the troubles, I think, and there was a, a young boy who was shot by uh, British paramilitaries, right? And, uh, you know, they run to the house and the first thing that they say is, Paddy's after been shot, right? So this is a, it's a heavy, it can be a very heavy expression as well. That has roots in the Irish language, so there, there is an Irish uh, grammatical construction that that comes from. But uh, this thing of using the anus as a site of the soul and so on, like this is, um, you know, you could really find a parallel to that in the Japanese body culture of always centering everything on the hips. If you learn golf, I learned fucking golf here. And the elderly Japanese businessmen who were teaching me, uh, everything was about the hips for them. You know, I don't know if that's the way that you get, you learn when you learn it in the West, but everything's about the hips. It was all that. Uh, and of course, anytime you do anything like traditional and, and so on, no dance, Aikido, uh, Aikido is not hardly traditional at all, but it's still... Uh, has that that logic, right? Uh, there are people who point to, oh, look at the difference between uh, Superman with all his muscles up in his chest, and then you could correlate that with a kind of Western, you know, post-Renaissance. I don't, I don't know about medieval. What did medieval Europeans believe? It's often more of a pan-Eurasian uh, thing half the time. But uh, the stuff about the heart, you know, everything, all the discourse is centered on the heart, uh, selfhood is felt in the heart, emotions are felt in the heart, maybe. And so uh, contrast that image of strength of Superman with the image of the sumo wrestler. The sumo wrestler has all of his muscles in his core, and his core muscles are all what he uses to uh, maintain his balance so well and not get knocked out of the ring, because that's what that sport is all about. Well, on the other hand, of course, uh, there's some, if you look up pictures of sumo wrestlers from the first cameras that were in Japan in the late Tokugawa, early Meiji, uh, it would be 1870s, I think. It gets invented in France and it really is brought to Japan right away, I think. It's pretty much right away. And you see those sumo wrestlers, they, they look strong. They look conventionally strong. So there, I don't know, there's some kind of creep, cultural creep of like, you know, something similar to what happened in the no theater, maybe in the physical 
the bodily realm where like this is our national theater so we're gonna do it really really slow you know i mean it is slow it is slow and dignified and it's it's a religious ritual of sorts right i mean it has features of an exorcism i've talked about this but uh if you look at the video that exists the film that exists of uh the taisho period you know 1920s or something you can see it's a lot faster and also we can judge from records uh from the medieval period uh, even faster then you know it maybe took like 30 minutes not even for a a one play, just judge, judging from how many plays they crammed in from one morning to night in, in one record. So, yeah, anyway, uh, the, the no stance as well is all based on lowering your hips down and having your hips down at all times, kind of lower than normal, and then not moving those hips at all as you move around. Right? I was talking with my teacher about... He had just gone and, and met up with some... Hawaiian uh, hula masters and was talking about like some similarities there and was saying there's definitely a Pacific Rim thing and I was saying if you ever get a chance to go check out the um, you know meet up with the Kwakwakiwak meet up with the potlatch people of the Pacific Northwest you got to do that because you know that's I keep talking about this on the podcast I'd love to do a deeper dive about that and also the comparative modernities there, the way that Japan gets promoted as a modern or potentially modernizable uh, country, potentially white country, whereas Kwakwakiwak, of course, is not. Pacific Northwest is not. And why is that? Right. What are the political factors, the relations of production that produce that? Obviously, because the potlatch is all about the dispersal of wealth rather than the accumulation of wealth. So that disqualifies it right away from capitalist modernity, I would think. And there are also parapolitical causes which have to do as much with the anthropologists who are recording its characteristics, right? We've discussed this with Lai Hall. Sorry, I'm repeating myself. So, uh, you know, the, the hips and the anus, right? In, in Irish English, you get phrases like, you know, don't bother your hole about it or, you know, God, it would sicken your hole to hear what, you know, he said. It, it's like, um, yeah, your hole is, is a thing that everyone has. Everyone has a hole, did you know? Um, you know, just like ancient Egyptians, everyone has a ka and a ba and an eeb and different parts of the soul there. Well, in Irish English, you have your hole, right? And uh, you can bother. And, and if you're speaking kind of nicely, delicately, you, you'll say hoop. So don't bother your hoop about it, or, um, or I will in my hole, you will in your hoop, right? Um, if you say that something will happen in your hoop or in my hoop, that means it will not happen, right? It'll happen in your, in your imagination, does it mean? I imagine it in my anus, uh, right? And I, it's not going to happen in reality. Uh, or just the anus is a reversal of everything that is in the real world. So this is a fantasy realm inside the anus. Uh, I'm not real sure, you know. I'm just a, an Irish American. So um, I'd love to hear from any Irish listeners uh, what, what is the psychology of that, right? And could this have some relation to... Uh, so I was actually looking... There, I'm working on a historical document, which if I talk too much about my actual research on here, I'm going to 
dox myself too blatantly. Uh, but like, so I, I did have occasion to look into the roots of Satanism and ideas about what Satan, Satanic rituals entail. And one common idea about what uh, witches and, and sorcerers do to gain some magic powers is a ritual where they kiss the anus of the devil. And this is, so like, that idea of like reversing, and so for, for Christianity then, and, uh, you know, an Abrahamic, a kind of uh, axial age system, the anus is the opposite of what is, you know, I mean, this is axial age religions go with polarities, absolute good. And that gives birth to the idea of absolute evil. We discussed last time as well, you know, this is why I, th I think Mishima is not a Japanese nationalist or cultural nationalist, but a Western esotericist, because he has this idea of the beauty of destruction and death and cruelty that only comes if you have the idea of the absolute sacredness of, you know, uh, human beings as the image of God or something like this, right? And it, the, the, the aesthetic, some kind of satanic power comes from the idea of dismantling that, right? But you have to have that idea that this is something totally special and, and so on and the only, the only special thing. I mean, it is something special, I think, for anyone. But like, the only special thing, the most special thing, the thing for which the universe was created, and so on, right? If you, ha you have to have that idea. Uh, and then you have to have, as well, the idea of the eternal soul, and the eternal soul is maybe centered on the head, or the chest, or right, the heart, and so on. And so then, any kind of principal energies that are lower in the body are then marked as evil energies, and that's what can be drawn upon to... Uh, you know, do satanic magic, uh, which I think is is real to people who believe in it, right? And real, real to people who belong to systems such as would make it work on them, I think. So, right? Uh, but, but might that have been given birth to by a dialectic whereby the Axial Age religions of the Mediterranean look at the hinterland, the European hinterland, uh, Celtic religions that still have um, you know, sent, I don't know what they have exactly, you know, this is the thing about what Celtic culture is, it really changes with the teller, because we don't have any authoritative texts that survive, and it's all just very tenuous interpretations of different archaeological sites, and ley lines, and megalithic uh, artifacts, Stonehenge, and all that, so... So who knows? But uh, yeah, I think maybe you can say that there's some kind of difference between ways of living, ways of inhabiting your body that are much more kind of higher in your body and ways that are lower in your body. And, uh, you know, a whole big part of what a lot of Zen teachers that I've heard uh, talk about is lowering your consciousness, lowering your body. I do like that idea. I really do like that idea of like, um, and that's, that's coming from a culture that has certainly experienced uh, axial age absolutisms and knows what they are, right? But is, is kind of backing away from them, right? Uh, into a non-dual kind of, like truly non-dual. A lot of times, you know, Western occultists use wor the word non-dual to mean uh, Satanist, right? embracing the negative principle in a positive negative absolute binary that is taken as still axial still foundational right 
um, well, so that you're not really doing it, right? You're not really getting there. So I'm running with my whole body is what I'm saying. And I love it. My whole, all my core muscles are kind of engaging in this way that is a little bit new to me and uh, can't, can't recommend it enough. I hope that you are experiencing similar successes in your life. And uh, if you want to share about it, please come on down to the Discord. Uh, if you're not already a member of the Kingless Generation, and this is a free episode, isn't it? Uh, you can become so on Patreon.com. Look for us on there. And for a low, low proletarian price, you get access to all the premium episodes as well as the Discord server where you can connect with your fellow members of the Kingless Generation. So tell me how you're doing. You're entitled, you're invited to do that on Twitter as well, even if you don't pay me any money, I don't care. Um, so I mentioned last time that the exact same lawyer that actually was defending the KAU, the Kenyan African Union leader, Jomo Kenyatta, who was put on trial and slammed in Anglo media as Africa's Hitler, quote unquote. Uh, his name was Dennis Pritt, this lawyer, and he also was Gerhard Eisler's old lawyer, who in Britain saved him from extradition to the US. And then he subsequently was able to escape from British custody and make his way to East Germany, where he became a, a minister of communications there, right? And that's not the only way in which uh, the Kenyan liberation struggle is relevant to Ira and Adita Morris, who I am continuing, I will continue to discuss today, right? The, uh, the song that I opened with is uh, by a French rock star of the 60s, his name is Claude Francois, uh, known as Clo-Clo, to his fans. And he was the son of an Italian woman and his father, a French man, working as a senior manager in the Anglo-French Suez Canal Company on the Suez Canal. And so he was born in Egypt, in fact. And... In the 1956 Suez Crisis, uh, which is also called the Second Arab-Israeli War, uh, it's called the Tripartite Aggression in the Arab World, maybe because uh, the French, the Brits, and the Zionist entity all invaded and, and had a big fight over uh, the Sinai Peninsula, right? And uh, the, the Suez Canal being a very meaningful for the current uh, Zionist aggression in Gaza right now. Uh, the, not only the oil fields off the Gaza coast, right? Uh, of course, everybody wants that. And there is an old British kind of uh, claim on that, which runs out next year, I think. And that's a big part of uh, why this opportunity is being taken to uh, try to, you know, reduce Gaza to rubble unfortunately. And of course, one additional reason why they're trying to do this is because they have long had a plan to create a Suez Canal killer, an alternative canal that will link the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea. You know, the Suez Canal is, as you might imagine, rather outdated by now. It's pretty narrow. 
It only has, I think you can only go one direction at a time. They have to shut down traffic to go the other way and all this. But you could, you could create uh, a two-lane canal, right? And uh, maybe the, the evergreen or evergrand or strangely codenamed uh, freighter that got stuck in the Suez Canal during the corona crisis, uh, this might have been uh, some kind of signal to, along these lines. I, who knows? Every, there's all kinds of fascinating speculation about what that is. And it was a very similar name, a certain Chinese firm that collapsed around that time. What is this stuff? They're, they're, try, they're just trying to make me go crazy. But the plan is to use nukes, underground nukes, right? All kinds of things they can do with underground nukes buried. Just ask Dr. Heinz Poma about that. Check out the Ground Zero model for an interesting use of nukes. But what they're going to try to do there, they uh, bury a lot of nukes in a line and then blow them up to instantly geoform instantly create this dugout uh, corridor which would pass through precisely Gaza. Through precisely. If they raise Gaza to the ground, uh, then they can draw a straight path through there, through the Red Sea, right? You go through the Red Sea, and then you can go straight through, right? But otherwise, they have to go all the way around. Uh, and they're waiting for this. Although that's not uh, succeeding uh, happily every day, we're, we're seeing all kinds of very interesting videos of uh, lots of successful popular resistance. The people are really fighting back. Uh, these people who have grown up under oppression, grown up never having seen the sea. They, they're born right next to the sea in their own land, and they've never even seen it. They've never even seen an Israeli. They've never even... These walls, they're surrounded by these walls all the time. And now they're, they've busted out. And now they are decimating the occupying army as it is uh, coming into a, an urban battle that it is completely unprepared for. They've only been uh, bullying around little children and uh, women for so long. And that's what always happens to an imperial occupying force. But back in 1956, you know, this was just uh, the beginning, right? The Suez Canal, this is the main way to get shipping from the Indian Ocean into the Mediterranean. That's dug through Egyptian territory. It's Egyptian-owned. It did belong uh, to this uh, Anglo-French Suez Canal company, and Cloclo's father worked for them. But... Uh, in 1956, Nasser, the Egyptian president, nationalized the Suez Canal. And Israel's invasion is partly a reaction to that, and it's partly the beginning of Israel's uh, long-held uh, ambition to invade all its neighboring countries and create a greater Israel that stretches from the Nile River to the Euphrates River. They wanna, they've, they've always been saying they want to take the whole thing. So... But for Cloclo, uh, this was a bit of a traumatic event for his family, and they returned to France uh, to live in Monaco. Monaco, the place where Ayako and Ivan Morris, the uh, weeb for the ages, under discussion uh, currently. Uh, last time we discussed how Ayako had a charming little roulette encounter with 
the um, the Jewish American, uh, I mean, Eastern European born, you know, kind of a, a Robert Maxwell figure, really, uh, known as the octopus of Hollywood. He, she, they had an encounter with him in where else but sunny Monaco. And that is the place where Claude Francois uh, started his musical career and he became a, a big uh, musical sensation during that, the swinging 60s. He's pretty ordinary as an artist and despised by the high culture press at the time, but just a, a typical little sound that I think uh, Ivan Morris probably would have heard somewhere and probably hated it, right? He's quite a snob by all accounts of people who knew him. Uh, but so his parents actually participated a little bit in what is known as the Kenyan Airlift. You have on that the famous book Airlift to America by Tom Schachtman. And that's about how Barack Obama Sr. and a whole bunch of other people were set up uh, to go from Kenya and study in the United States as a kind of you know, counter to the Soviet Union as a school of revolution and a school of, of global class struggle, right? It seems to me, you know, I think this is an area for further study in general. Uh, I'm not going to be the one to blow this one open this time. But I just want to add this note in here that one of the many little global hotspots that Ira and Adita Morris were in and out of was Kenya at the time of the Mau Mau Rebellion. I've discussed before how the great uh, theorist of gangs and counter-gangs in the north of Ireland, Frank Kitson, who uh, is a British counterinsurgency expert. And of course, he's the one who gets uh, his operatives to dress up all as Catholics and do an, a terrorist attack on a Protestant neighborhood then you dress up as ordinary Protestants and go do a terrorist attack on the Catholic neighborhood, and you're able to perpetuate these so-called tribal ancient uh, grievances, ancient uh, eternal uh, unrest among the natives, which necessitates the continued British military presence. These obviously look at this. These fucking patties can't govern themselves no matter what you do, so... We've got to be here. We've got to keep on exploiting the population. We've got to keep on with our military repression. And so that's what they do. Uh, that is a, you know, that has permutations all across the globe. But one of the places that Frank Kitson polished that up was, of course, Kenya, right? The Kenyan airlift, uh, it was a quote-unquote private American initiative in which Barack Obama Sr., uh, there is it, and the the figure that they sort of adopt as like our adopt a adopt a Kenyan uh, founding father, freedom fighter, uh, it was named Cyrus Karuga. They first meet him in October of 1952, and uh, they're introduced to the Mau Mau by the Indian ambassador at that time. That's their connection. Uh, Karuga was kept in the Kamiti prison in Nairobi. He was caught at a certain point. They talk to him before he gets caught, I think. Um, and that, that was the site of many executions, that Kamiti prisons, uh, and many massacres. But today it's been turned into an idyllic resort. You know, and that really does happen to a lot of former uh, concentration camp areas. Uh, 
I can only hope that there's something real about the idea that some kind of negative energy remains after atrocities are committed. I don't know. Um, I have a feeling if it did, you know, people would have less of a good time at these resorts, don't you think? I don't know. But I, I hope, I hope that somebody's dreams are uh, haunted by the victims uh, of such a place. So this uh, program is private, quote-unquote. You know, uh, Monica Brow just takes that on faith that it was private. You know, you and I know that, of course, this is a strategic initiative of the U.S. intelligence uh, to counter the Soviet influence because the Soviet Union was the place where aspiring colonial, decolonial leaders would go. So once again, you have Ira and Adita fulfilling this function of, yeah, making, making America the center of anti-fascist, anti-colonial resistance. You know, they, they're welcome in the Soviet Union, but they, they never quite take it as their base of operations. Uh, Monica Brau is a little more credulous about the reasons why that might be happening, you know? I mean, like she, uh, another thing that they wrote about was the 1965 Indonesian genocide of leftists. And uh, Brau is, is much more negative about Sukarno, the leader that was deposed, calling him, you know, very contradictory muddle. He had a muddle of, of politics, including Islam and and communism together. You know, who could imagine those things? There was a great tweet by Lake Eater, I think it was, that said something like, oh no, what? Marxism is just a religion? Psychoanalysis is just confession? Oh, you mean like this whole time we've just been trying to integrate thousands of years of human wisdom together with this modern scientific discourse? Oh no, count me out. Oh geez, I don't want to do that. You know, well, you know, I mean, that, that betrays a lack of understanding of somebody in a decolonial uh, position, right? In a colonial position trying to get out, you have to deal with all the ways that your people think and all the life ways and knowledges that your people have. And if you apply those under a framework of dialectical materialism and scientific uh, revolution, you're going to go somewhere with that. And, and Sukarno was going somewhere with that, and that's why such drastic measures were taken against him, right? And Ira Adita do write, uh, you know, she writes a, a novel set there. Um, it's about a dancer, you know, it's always about an artist, you know? It's always about a, a, a creative artist who is in the midst of a revolutionary situation and just wants to do his art. And uh, in that case, it sounds like she does come around to a kind of like, you know, the uh, colonialism is a waste of human potential and so on. How many brilliant singers and dancers and so on have died without being trained and having a chance to really shine under oppressive conditions, right? Uh, that will connect to uh, some of Ayako's activities in the ballet world later on. I'll just foreshadow that one second. But this Kenyan airlift operation was, uh, there's 85, 80-some, you know, maybe almost 90 Kenyans and one each from Uganda and um, Tanzania to start with. Uh, Jackie Robinson, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, and Martin Luther King 
supported this. Déjà, les Beatles étaient quatre garçons dans le vent, et moi. Ma chanson disait marcher tout droit. Oh, cette année-là, quelle joie d'être l'idole des jeunes pour des fans qui cassent les fauteuils. Plus j'y pense et moins j'oublie. J'ai découvert mon premier monde et amour Le seul grand unique et pour toujours le public cette année-là Dans le ciel passait une musique Un oiseau qu'on appelait Spoutnik Oh, quelle année cette année-là you know, the U.S. intelligence establishment again and again manages to get the support of black Americans for different initiatives that it's having that are carefully disguised, but really, they're really about asserting Anglo-American power on the African continent and continuing to exploit it, making sure that it does not become decolonized. You know, one of the glaring examples of that would be the activities of uh, the mother of Dave Chappelle, right? Dave Chappelle's mother, there's a famous thread on Twitter about that. Check that out. I'm sure I have linked it somewhere in my Discord. The, she was part of a group that came in right after the assassination of Patrice Lumumba and served as a secretary. She, and then she went on to say that she served as secretary to Patrice Lumumba, falsely, even though she actually served for the people that replaced him there's no evidence that she was sort of involved in his uh, demise or anything like that. But it was definitely all through kind of U.S. State Department connections and everything that she got that job and that she participated in that, that, that stuff, right? Um, these kinds of things, right? Uh, very unfortunate kind of Cold War um, strategy or, you know, very effective, but unfortunate the way that they got so many black Americans to participate. Uh, but you can't, can you blame them? I, I'm, it's not for me to say. Uh, a notable Kenyan organizer of this was Tom Mboya, M-B-O-Y-A, representative of the East African Trade Union Movement, and uh, he was a founding father of modern Kenya as well. So he's in the trade union movement. This makes me wonder... So I've read elsewhere that Jay Lovestone, the notorious uh, anti-communist labor organizer who was instrumental in setting up uh, the CIO uh, as a, an anti-communist kind of purged uh, organization to the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, Jimmy Fallon Gong just had an episode recently which goes into details of this and people like that know way more than I uh, do about those the, these things, but Jay Lovestone is a famous leader of the anti-communist. He was making sure um, he was based in France a lot of the time, and he was making sure to fill Europe with right-wing, non-revolutionary, compliant labor unions 
whose main function was just to keep these middle classes, these labor aristocrats, in line uh, and make sure that they never had any uh, proletarian internationalist leanings at all, uh, or and certainly not any revolutionary leanings at all. So the fact that this, this program was founded with the involvement of Jay Lovestone and then Tom Maboya, you know, whatever compromises he made, I'm sure he felt he had to make them. I'm sure he felt it was worth it. Uh, you know, from my point of view, from my perch, I can't criticize him. But uh, it is possible that he too would have been involved in kind of limiting the scope of Kenyan labor organizing to things that, you know, led to the Kenya that we have today, which is, is not um, a revolutionary force exactly. Although there is a, a powerful communist party in Kenya today, has a lot of Chinese communist party backing, right? And they are always, you know, the kind of dungest uh, Twitter or whatever, you know. Um, people who believe that China is, you know, quote unquote, the, the bastion of world communism today or something um, would tend to share, would, would be in these networks um, of sharing the videos of the Kenyan and Kenyan Communist Party as well, right? And, you know, with China too, I don't have, I will never have as much shade for China as I do for the Anglo-American uh, capitalist establishment, but so let's see what they do. They certainly have not uh, pillaged the African continent yet. Anything like what the Euro-American establishment has and continues to do, right? The same French billionaire, speaking of the French, owns every port in, in Western Africa, the entire West Coast of Africa, right? And it's often said uh, Africa is an enormous place when you really look at the scale you know, like the whole scale of the East Coast, Somalia, like alone, like the whole Eastern African seaboard is as long as the Northeast Corridor. Longer, longer, I think. I was talking to an anthropologist in grad school once, and she was saying, you know, I'm going to drive up the coast of East Africa. I'm going to rent a car and just drive the coast and uh, do all kinds of field work in different places. I don't know. Uh, and that's going to take me, you know, a month or two, right? It's, it's something that, that takes a long, long, long time, even if you were in a hurry. And of course, there's tons of resources there. All of the countries that capitalism teaches you to think of as poor countries, those are actually the rich countries of the world. Those are the countries that have the resources. And the capitalist countries are the poor countries. They are poor in resources. They are poor in productive capacity. What they're rich in is power and cunning to go and pillage uh, other regions, you know, and that's what uh, needs to be put a stop to. That time is, the time is up. Time is up from Palestine out. So Karuga, Cyrus Karuga, he studies at a college in Nebraska, and then, Broad doesn't say where that was, that'd be interesting to know exactly where that was, and then Rutgers University in New Jersey. Um, Karuga's eldest daughter, Sylvia, works as a consultant for a bank in Dallas, Texas, and Bra was able to track her down and talk to her. That is true of multiple characters in this story in Bra's book, she traces, she tracks them down to Dallas, Texas. 
something about uh, <laughs> these, these characters on the edge of Ivan Morris's story uh, in Dallas, Texas. Edita wrote a novel about Kenya, but she could never get it published. Um, she saw presciently Africa as the future global hotspot that it is now becoming, right? Um, however, you know, you can tell this is another thing about these uh, wealthy, idle, rich leftists. Even if you take them to be very sincere, which I guess there isn't a reason not to, you know, I'm, I'm bringing my noited takes to you. But I confess as well that it, that's just, you know, that is what it is. Edita reports a, a real touching moment when Karuga visits her shortly after Ira's death. And she feels so happy about that. She writes just glowingly, I, I, now I am in the arms of my Kenyan son and everything is all right. I feel comforted and, and he's come, my son has come to help me. Right, this adoption kind of motherly uh, adoption rhetoric toward the subaltern uh, person, right? You you see that in the Japanese Empire as well. You know, in the the English language collection, reading colonial Japan, there is a serialized kind of column that's translated known as Manchu Girl, and it's all about you know a, a Japanese mother. I'm your Japanese mother. She's a housewife of a of a Japanese army officer in, I think, the capital of colonial Manchuria, and she, you know, teaches the the young uh, Chinese girl how to be Japanese, how to wear a kimono, and how to be a good imperial subject of the Japanese Empire. Right. So that can go all kinds of directions. Anyway, Adita is very comforted uh, by that uh, visit. But then later she writes very bitterly about him because she feels like he kind of stopped, right? he stopped writing and so on, right? She writes, people are strange. They take everything and give nothing. Just feeling, yeah. You know, where is the loyalty? So then another thing that I want to talk about now you know, is other friends of hers in various global hotspots. And another place where she had friends is Greece. The Greek Civil War, right, has veteran left-wing and right-wing guerrillas fighting each other. It lasts until 1949, after the end of World War II. And she's friends with a great leftist leader there, uh, Diorgos Sevastioglu, uh, and his wife, Alkizei. So they uh, had all kinds of trouble during the Civil War. The Greek government, uh, which was, of course, Western-backed, tortures leftists on prison islands that had been unused since Roman times. They, they used them again, you know, all that time of, of uh, Muslim rule of Greece. And, uh, you know, that, that's a whole interesting history that I'd love to go into more deeply at some point. That's another pivot country, like, a lot like the Ukraine war, isn't it? It's this, this place where the battle between East and West is staked out and you get one of the first color revolutions really by the British Empire sending in there and starting the, uh, a puppet kind of democratic government called the United States of Ionia for the Ionian Islands. And then those islands are the staging point for invasions of Muslim Greece, of Ottoman Greece, and uh, that's taken over uh, to get by those forces. 
all kinds of volunteers from across Europe, free people who want to go help the, the cradle of Western civilization to throw off the Eastern uh, despotic yoke, including Lord Byron, the poet, of course, famously goes and dies in the Greek Revolution. This is sung to the skies. Uh, there's a number of like encyclopedias of the Greek Revolution and so on, like, nice scholarly books that have come out just recently on that. And I'd love to get, somebody should get sharp on that and approach it from a historical materialist point of view. Don't you think? But so the uh, Cold War uh, fascist government of Greece used, revived these Roman torture islands, prison islands, right? But Sevastikoglu and Alkize finally get sort of free of all this, and they're going to go and join the culture scene in, in France or somewhere after their wedding. But then at their wedding, the order comes in from the Comintern saying that Sevastikoglu is needed in Greece, he has to stay in Greece and organize in the countryside and so on. And uh, Bra draws this uh, picture where it's the Comintern is constantly ruining his life. And it does kind of look like Russian racism is uh, ruining a lot of things at this time. I might connect that to the way that the Soviet Union's treatment of Japanese prisoners of war was a real stain on their record uh, in a way. I mean, you know, a lot of these, it's not like the Japanese army was up to any good in Siberia. But they approach the Japanese prisoners of war with a kind of uh, vindictiveness that does not do them any favors, whereas the Chinese communists are models for their re-education programs. Fantastic. You know, that term re-education gets a bad rap from anti-communist uh, crazy propaganda. But in fact, you know, I would love a good re-education. Uh, my education originally, f bullshit, bunch of bullshit. My God, I was just saying, you know, oh, I don't want to say too much, too much uh, under a pseudonym about like colleagues or something. But I will say that just check out new books in Japanese studies, and I will say that there are people on there that that I was taught to revere as like the leaders of leftist Japanology that. Um, you know, the dominant, I've said this before, the dominant current is post-materialist, post-Marxist, neoliberal, philosophically neoliberal, uh, navel-gazing bullshit, you know, that doesn't allow anybody to get free. It does not equip you to get free, and it doesn't equip you to understand what's really happening in Japan and what really happened in Japan in the past. So there's a lot. That's a lot of books there that I always felt guilty for not reading. That I don't feel guilty anymore. And I would love the whole program to rethink all that and and see. Oh, these are the mistakes that you've been making. This is why this is not good. This is why this is going to destroy the world. And that's exactly how the Japanese soldiers felt when they were taught this. You know, Barack Kushner has this fascinating book, uh, "Men to Devils, Devils to Men." which is all about the varying treatment of Japanese prisoners of war and war criminals, I mean, specifically war criminals in various countries, right? And the big contrast that he draws is between Taiwan and 
the Chinese government, which is that, you know, Taiwan, they're just like, ah, oh, we'll, you know, we'll kill some of you. Oh, first, the worst ones, it's, a, yeah, we're going to kill you right away. And then the rest of them, it's like, ah, oh, okay, now we made our point. So why don't you now come do more crimes with us? We're going to keep on trading opium and we're going to keep on doing war crimes all over the world for the fascist international in the, under the Fourth Reich, right? They were known as the white group the white group in Taiwan. Uh, they just, you know, it's a very uh, paperclip. They just do paperclip over in Taiwan. Uh, whereas in China, they re-educate them. And even the ones who wanted eventually to go home to Japan, uh, you know, they uh, they wanted, they, we need your skills was was the message. You, and, and also former settlers, right? Uh, There's a decolonization that happened there. There was land back that happened there. And their attitude was very much former settlers. If you will undergo re-education and renounce your settler outlook, uh, you have skills that, that the whole revolution can use and you can benefit humanity in all these ways. So come, be a doctor, be a nurse, be an engineer. Come on, we'll educate you. We'll work with you. And they did, you know, that's what they did. That's what lots of them did. Uh, and even the ones who eventually decided they want to go back to Japan, they formed peace organizations. They, they became social activists for the rest of their lives. They would go back to China every year, every couple years, to meet their former captors, to meet the people who re-educated them because they were so happy and grateful to them for changing their outlook and for showing them the truth. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. So, but the Soviet Union is not always that advanced. And this is, I see this as an example of that. Uh, for them, Greeks, in, isn't this interesting? Look, think again of Greek, Greece's position as a former Ottoman country. It is a former Muslim country. It is, it's the cradle of Western civilization, yes. But also it's this kind of, it's a Muslim country. And so when uh, Sevastopol finally gets permission to go and settle in the Soviet Union, which is surprisingly difficult to get, he has to go to Tashkent. He's put in Tashkent, Greek communists. Uh, that's where they put them. He didn't get to live in Moscow right away. M much later, he finally gets to, uh, right? So, you know, the CPSU split with the Greek Communist Party over Stalin, is another thing. In the post-war, I think after Stalin's death, the Greek Communist Party was not so much on board with the demonization of Stalin that happens under Khrushchev. So you see these bizarrely opposite attitudes between the Soviet Union and the West vis-a-vis -vis Greece. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union, uh, and, and hey, Slavic peoples historically were in this, they were right in the middle of that. They too had also Islamized to some extent. They were sometimes under the influence of Eastern Christianity, right? But just as often, we read uh, Ibn Fadlan, right? Ibn Fadlan visiting the, uh, in the mission to the Volga, visiting the traders, the Slavic traders, the, the Rus, the Viking Rus. He is evaluating them as converts, is, is his main mission there. He's kind of like a missionary. He's like the Jesuits writing reports about Japan uh, or the Maya or indigenous people in Canada. Same kind of thing. 
Uh, how are these people are new converts to Islam? How are they doing? It's the kind of thing, right? So it's not entirely an externalized thing for any Slavic people, uh, but the Soviet Union ultimately, you know, there is some discrimination about uh, Eastern peoples within the Soviet Union. And of course, the flip side of that, which Alki Zay talks about, is the sometimes absurd Western European obsession with Greece as the cradle of Western civilization and so on, right? So they're fetishized in this way. Uh, the junta in Greece, the right-wing dictatorship, was in power until 1974. Uh, one detail from Nobuko's memoir, which I will bring in now, is that there, there's a there's I think there's multiple real people from Edita's life who are maybe rolled into one because there's one with whom she lives kind of after Ira's death. Uh, and then the one who takes care of Ira's body, in fact. This is a real story. That was Georgos. That's her Greek friend. He, he really took charge there in the w immediate wake of the, the death and helped to arrange everything, right? But that character in Nobuko's uh, fictional memoir... Uh, is the one that Ivan always calls the Dago. Ivan is just casually racist in that. Although, you know, some of that could be just Nobuko's outlook because, you know, Nobuko is very proud in her writings under her own name, you know, about Ivan in, in the biographical portraits series by Hugh Cortazzi. She, you know, talks about disparagingly of Ira's uh, gatherings of activists at the, the castle at Nail, uh, as like, you know, all races m mixed in together, all races and colors. And her whole takeaway from her experience with Ivan is just that, you know, he's a, you, that's what you get for being a wandering Jew. And that's what you get for being a, a mongrel and a mutt. Uh, whereas I am from pure undiluted stock, racial stock, she literally uses words like that, uh, which people in the British, the high British establishment use all the time. We know from all kinds of glimpses into that. Well, but and more on that, more on the high British establishment uh, when we get to her memoir. So I guess I'll try to wrap up this time about Ivan's parents. Uh, but they ran this whole kind of salon, uh, and Ira loved these long, day-long parties in their country chateau outside Paris. And anybody who was anybody on the left would come to these shindigs and hang out, you know. Um, I have a picture for episode art of people gathering on the, on the steps at Nail, and uh, that's a big part of what would happen there. Nobuko narrates the family taking part in one of the demonstrations against the war in Vietnam because Ira became the president of the French Association of Americans Against the War in Vietnam. And uh, she describes him always being on the phone with his cronies. Uh, and, you know, he kind of forced, the, the family was forced to take part in, in a demonstration and Ivan was muttering the whole time, what an embarrassment, how embarrassing. Uh, how vulgar. And, uh, you know, they were de denouncing Americans as yahoos. They just, 
And it almost sounds like were they joking around like we're doing this as provo we're just doing this as provocateurs, you know? That's my little noited uh, impulse leads me in that direction. But again, there's nothing for my hand to really grasp there. Uh, I, I can't really stay there. Yeah. In her in Edita's later years, she becomes the patron of a Scandita Scandinavian proletarian novel competition called Klaasbroek. I think you pronounce that. Um, clear, clear spoke, clear spoken. Uh, and she wanted to hide her involvement in some ways. She feared being labeled an angel investor, as they say. And uh, her involvement is all these grumpy critiques of the contestants. They, this kind of like, not all of this is too vol. It's not good enough, not good enough. You know, can't they get real artists, real artists? So this is a kind of, this is often, uh, you know, in a Japanese context as well. I can remember hearing an academic presentation about somebody who tried to do a similar kind of contest thing where you get actual workers to try to write proletarian fiction. But then, you know, the, the professional writers with bourgeois educations who organize it, well, they're not always totally satisfied with the submissions, even if they're, you know, supposedly this is coming from the real working class and all that. But, you know, then they'll be like, oh, aesthetically, this isn't right or something, right? Um, Edita, I don't know about the Japanese case, but this Edita thing, she definitely is very grumpy. Um, it's unclear exactly what her critique is. I would love to, you could dig into the archive more there and try to bring out why does she not like, because she talks about the new and the old, you know, oh, it's too bad that these young people, you know, everybody in, Sc and she has, she looks down on her home region quite a bit over there in Scandinavia. Everybody, you're so out of it. You know, I live in Paris and I know what's going on, but, uh, you know, uh, they had a, they had a room in Paris, um, they have they have apartments in Paris, uh, London, New York, uh, of course. In addition to their chateau, there's a note actually the in the Paris apartment they had Japanese hanging scrolls, they had France Fanon displayed, they had George Jackson, and they had Eldridge Cleaver. Isn't that interesting? So they do they go in for the Black Panther chic. They know what that is. They know what that is, but. Their thing is is not that it's not that at all, um, and then Eldridge Cleaver is a is a famous um, collaborator ultimately at, at least ultimately if not you know earlier than that, so that's interesting as well. But uh, she was co she was uh, collaborating on this Scandinavian project here with uh, the the publishing family the Gidlunds, right? And mostly Gertrude Gidland. And uh, her correspondence with her is, is the most intimate of, the, of that time period in her life, right? And uh, she, yeah, she keeps criticizing all the contestants like, oh, these, these young people, they're thinking old. They're thinking the old way, the old way. Why can't we have anything new? You know, and this is, this is the 80s now. Uh, so in the 80s, what would that have meant? Does that mean they're still talking about, you know, like the Great Patriotic War? They're still, you shouldn't talk about communism. Does she want them to be more neo neoliberal kind of liberals at this point? That would track with um, certain narratives, certain interpretations about uh, what her deal was. 
and another thing there is that she gets really interested in overpopulation. She reads about the coming hunger in 1980 and 1990. There's going to be, uh, you know, hunger, and it's the fault of all these Asians, Africans, and Latin Americans who are reproducing too much, and so on. Right? So that's a big wow. Okay, you know, uh, she does write very sympathetically often. You know, m much more than most white people in of her time period. Could, would she write about the subjectivity of, like, the cleaning lady that works in the resort where she stayed in Jamaica or something, right? And she goes back to her shack uh, somewhere and, like, what is daily life actually like for her? Edita puts a lot of effort into this kind of thing, right? Southeast Asia as well. And then another candidate for the guy who Ivan calls the Dago in, the, in Nobuko's fictionalized memoir is the Mexican writer Roberto Chavez, who she was with when she found out about Ivan's death. All right, about which more later. But Roberto Chavez helped her out a lot in, in you know, her widowhood. Uh, another person who helped her out a lot and she stayed with late in life was the Puerto Rican Carl Manzani, who is a veteran of the Spanish Civil War, also the OSS and the State Department during the war. Uh, but then he was one of the first victims of McCarthyism. Yeah. And then another person she hung out with a lot was the Turkish writer Ulku Tamer. So, I don't know, is he the Dago? <laughs> Who's the fucking Dago? Ivan, yeah, he's depicted as very being very racist uh, in this way that fits with him being just a hardcore right-winger British establishment. That's who he became politically. And that's very, as I said last time, it's at least very interesting, if not necessarily suspicious, that his mother is able to exert so much influence over him that he will break up with a woman any time on his mother's orders, but she was able to influence his politics, not at all, assuming that she tried to. And then maybe one thing, one last thing that I will discuss this time is the connection of the Morrises to Hiroshima. Uh, there are different dates given that are, are wrong. Monica Brau, being an expert on the atomic bombing, is uh, able, sure enough, to pin down actually Ivan Morris, when he was drafted, right, he's drafted into the army out of Harvard. He goes to the Japanese language school in Colorado, right, where his teachers are Japanese Americans who get out of the concentration camps on the excuse that they're teaching Japanese there. Uh, the, the school needs to be located inland, though, in order not to have the teachers be violating uh, Roosevelt's de declaration that they have to be separated from the coast. That's this interesting detail, right, of the Japanese-American internment is that it was felt safe. The, the safety was found by uh, bringing these dangerous uh, population. This dangerous population had to be brought inland, and then it would be okay. So they put them down, you know, different places. One of them, the camps I mentioned near uh, Boulder, Colorado, is... Uh, Right between a, a Crow people reservation and one other reservation. 
you know, so very, it has its parallels with the treatment of indigenous people too, yeah. Uh, which again, you know, a theme that we should again keep in mind, the Gerald Horn point on Japan, uh, that they were not white yet. They were not white yet, right? So what does that say about all the, you know, Ivan Morris's racism, Ivan Morris's kind of Brit Britannophilia that he has, right? Uh, he was, he was worked for American naval intelligence during the war, not anybody else. So not the Brits, uh, although he worked for uh, the British Royal Institution while he was in grad school at SOAS, right? Or maybe like shortly after that. Um, and he's very proud of that. Uh, Nobuko characterizes that as the BBC International Service. He's broadcasting something. But uh, what Bra shows is that he was working at the Royal Institution. So that's a bit different there. As I, you know, what he really would have been doing is a little unclear, and we'll get deeper into sort of hints of that uh, in his three, he has three kind of s memoirs by the women in his life, we'll say. And it was, you know, Monica Bra talks about how what brought her to do her project on Edita was that, one, she lived kind of a parallel life to her, she realized. Uh, she and her husband had been a kind of activist couple. They visited China during the Cultural Revolution and took all kinds of film which got confiscated, which got destroyed in the development process, not by accident, they think, in Hong Kong. So unfriendly uh, agents would have spoiled that project for her. And you know, she too had, had lost her, her partner in uh, activism. And and then also there was this detail that this strange detail that bothered her about Adita. You know, she kind of like, kind of like me, uh, has this kind of ambivalent attitude about her. Like, is she for real or what? But although that's isn't that something every leftist feels about every other leftist? Whenever you meet someone, you know, there's a certain stage in your development as a baby communist where you have to get over trying to prove to everyone you meet that you're more real and hardcore than they are and so on. There's this kind of dynamic maybe. Uh, so maybe we should resist that. I don't know. You know, you don't want to be a, a fed jacketer um, all the time. <laughs> you don't want to be a dupe either. But another thing that bothered uh, Bra was that there was this family lore about Ivan being sterile because he was in Hiroshima. And uh, in fact, though, he would have visited Hiroshima. He actually visited Hiroshima on the 12th of December, 1945. And this was together with a lot of the doctors, American doctors that were getting in uh, and joining the Japanese doctors who had already, on American orders, been observing all the victims of the atomic bombing. And I now I can add something here, which I think is a little bit explosive and explains a lot. What Ivan would have witnessed is what has been made into documentaries here in Japan that or the orders from the American side to the Japanese doctors attending the patients were just don't treat anyone, don't give them any treatment, You're, you are only to just watch their bodies fall apart, watch the radiation sickness affect them, we want data. We want good data on how quickly this kills people uh, and correlate. We're going to correlate that together with 
data of where they were and when and how far that was from the epicenter, from ground zero. And based on all this data, that's how they were able to then go and calculate all their prognostications of destruction you know, under the, the Wizards of Armageddon, right? The kind of thing Two Young Badass uh, takes this book, Wizards of Armageddon, uh, about all the kind of Hungarian anti-communist, uh, not white Russian, but white Hungarian types that were designing the hydrogen bomb and pushing Cold War nuclear hysteria. And... It was all based on these calculations of all the Russian cities, you know, we're going to drop here and here and here. And if somebody is this far from the epicenter of a bomb with this much uh, kilotonnage or whatever, it's going to kill them this quickly and so on. All of that is based on this data that was taken by deliberately letting men, women, children, didn't matter who it was, letting them die in front of you and just taking the data down. And I think this would actually explain his extremely cynical attitude when he comes back from the war, uh, about which Edita repeatedly expresses the feeling that like she lost her son, like he became a different person. In a certain short story that she wrote that she suggests is kind of uh, autobiographical, uh, there is a mother whose son comes home from war, and uh, it says, quote, his body had come back, but he had lost everything else, uh, especially, quote, the muscle called the heart. He had no kind feelings for anyone. He had experienced too much hatred. His eyes saw nothing. They had seen too much, too many faces without noses. And then here the auto-translate I think is a little weird. I think what it means is, and the sunken, melted masses of what, what had once been Hiroshima. The Swedish is Och Rasmasarna after det somen gong hadavarit Hiroshima. So looking directly just at this phoneme Ras in uh, just putting it in Google Translate, I see, um, you know, breed, family, race, but also landslide, slide, slipping. So I think it's it's got to be that. Um, the auto-translate translated it, the racial masses, uh, which I, that can't be right. And then now in, in Edita's autobiography, she remembers how she sat in a bar in New York with Ivan. He has, quote, clenched soldier's teeth and does not want to talk about the war. Then follows his unsavory story about Hiroshima. It is either told by Ivan to horrify Edita and arouse her pity, or it is a completely free reconstruction on its own. A according to her autobiography, Ivan says that the atomic bomb victims looked like burnt pork. Then he orders a triple whiskey and announces that he does not intend to continue living any longer in the current, quote, era of mass murder ushered in by the atomic bomb. We I mean, really, yeah, I mean, I think he, what might he have known about it? I mean, I, I think he witnessed the experiments that they were doing, basically just letting them die, refusing all treatment. He accuses not only the American government, but also the scientists, quote, beasts in human harbor always win. Is that translation right? Odier imenis kohamen, vinner altid. Oh, here we go. 
Okay. If you look up Haman by itself, it can mean harbor, docks, haven, guise, though. Guise, ghost, apparition as well. So human form, beast in human form always win. It, so you can see that would lead you to become a conservative and just embrace the establishment, right? Edita describes how she then finds him at home, uh, how he seems to be at home when he's at home. Now he accuses her and other writers of doing nothing for the world. They write, quote, porn shit or nonsense about neurotic couples torturing each other or about the losses of uh, homosexuals and lesbians. Writers are vomit. So I think we can see there that supposing that he was brought up to be something different in some way, uh, there his fate is sealed as a creature of the establishment. He has gone to the dark side and he, I can guess that he has seen some very dark things, as I've said. So, but there's fun ahead. There's more fun ahead and tons and tons of different uh, different side quests, different angles that this uh, opens up later. So stay tuned uh, for next time. Until next time, I'm Fergal Schmoodlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. Cette année-là, je chantais pour la première fois. Le public ne me connaissait pas. Oh, quelle année cette année-là. Cette année-là. Le rock'n'roll venait d'ouvrir ses ailes. Et dans mon coin, je chantais belle, belle, belle. Et le public aimait ça.